2 Samuel chapter 13. I mentioned that I was not excited about teaching on this topic, not because I'm not excited about teaching the Word of God. I think uh, the topic is so uh, sensitive uh, because of how many people are affected by this topic. Um, it is increasingly becoming common in novels and screenplays um, to depict rape uh, on the screen uh, in graphic detail. Our society has become more sick um, with what it, it craves after and what it longs for. Um, and so we see these unhealthy relationships, we see these abusive relationships on screen more and more and more. And uh, when these things, the Bible says it should not even be mentioned uh, rather than be something that we entertain ourselves with. So it's a sensitive topic, and, and uh, I want to approach it with a, a, a lot of humility um, so that uh, we can understand correctly what the Lord has for us. David, <clears throat> prior to his repentance with the whole situation with the adultery and the affair with uh, Bathsheba and the cover-up murder of Uriah, um, prior to that whole situation, uh, David has lived much of his adult life enslaved to lust. Um, he's amassed wives, and therefore he's amassed children. And, and by the time we get to chapter 13, his children are grown, uh, or at least the oldest ones have now entered adulthood, and the example that they've inherited from their father is an example of lack of self-control. And since self-control is a, is a fruit of the Spirit in our life, the lack of it, therefore, lust and the sexual sin that results from it, is a work of the flesh. And, and those fleshly seeds that David has been planting over the course of his adulthood, these fleshly seeds that he has sowed into his children's life as they've watched a life that's grown up like this, grown up watching a life like this, those seeds are now going to start poking up out of the earth. And what emerges are some sprouts that bring pain and misery to David's family. So chapter 13, we begin in verse 1. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. It's hard to read those words um, because the Bible's being honest with us about the situation here, uh, but it is hard because the situation is uh, a sick family dynamic that we read about here. Um, we're introduced to these, this triad of individuals who are going to dominate this chapter, Absalom, um, Amnon, and then Tamar. It mentions after this, so this is a few years after David's repentance, and, and we're going to see the first of two bad seeds begin to sprout here um, in Amnon. But Amnon is not mentioned first. Absalom is mentioned first. Absalom, it says that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister. Absalom is uh, David's third-born son uh, from uh, a woman named Maacah. She was the daughter of a foreign king, so this was a political marriage uh, that David entered into with Maacah. So Absalom is the, his third-born son, oldest from this woman, Maacah. 
He had a fair sister, a, a beautiful sister. Good looks ran in David's DNA. You see it over and over again. It mentions the, the good looks that David had. Absalom's a, a handsome man. Uh, Tamar is a beautiful woman. Uh, it mentions that he had this beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And then thirdly, we have, and we don't, we're, it does not tell us, I'm sorry, uh, his sister, is, it's a full sister, so she is also born from uh, Maacah, this political marriage. The third individual involved in this uh, account is Amnon, uh, the son of David. Amnon is David's firstborn son uh, overall. It's from Ahinoam, uh, David's third wife. He, remember, his first wife was Michael, Saul's, uh, Saul's uh, daughter. Then his second wife was Abigail because Nabal died, and then he took her in. And then third, we never mentioned this one. It just mentions that right about the same time Abigail came along, he took a third wife, and her name was Ahinoam. We know almost nothing about her, but his firstborn child, his firstborn son, came from her. Uh, Amnon is that firstborn son. So these three children are, are David's oldest kids, um, and they are now entering into the bloom of adulthood. And, and what should have been a joyful time, um, you know, for of launching them into these new beginnings of adulthood, it, it becomes a, a cesspool of evil, for it, it immediately shows the sick dynamic that Amnon, the son of David, loved his half-sister, Tamar. The word here, loved, is, is not the word normally used uh, to describe God's love in Scripture. Uh, the word is far lesser than that word, chesed. Um, this word, it, it's a very broad word. It can range from, you know, having affection for someone, not romantic at all, just having affection for someone. It can range from there to physical attraction to someone, to sinful desire for someone. The word can be used for all of those situations. And in this case, of course, it's attraction and sinful desire. There is no real love going on here. Now, you say, how do you know? I, very clearly, because Leviticus chapter 18, verse 9 forbids this type of thing. And so, uh, when we do something forbidden, how can I, you know, <laughs> how can I say, well, you know, I, I love this person when I'm being disobedient to God? You cannot. In Leviticus 18.9, it says, the nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether she be born at home or abroad, even their nakedness shall you not uncover. In other words, you're not to pursue them romantically. In Leviticus 20.17, it not only forbids it, but it makes it a capital crime. You can be executed for this. This is sexual sin, and it's, it's not permitted under any circumstances. Yet, God's law and capital consequences, they did not stop David from giving into his lust, did they? He committed adultery and other capital crime, murder as well. And so David's actions taught his children that your desire is more important than God's commands if the desire is strong enough, right? They learned that from him. You know, we are instructed over and over and over in the Word of God to teach our kids about God's commands, right? Teach them in the way that they go. When they rise up, when you sit down, as you go through the day, you know, have it all around the house. The idea is, is that we are, we are uh, commanded by God, you know, to do that. Well, if I have a word for you, parents, and particularly dads today, you will teach your children far more by your actions of obedience or disobedience to those commands. Because what your actions will teach your children is how important God's commands are. 
Like, I can tell my kids I'm blue in the face that you need to love your enemy. I can tell them, you know, you need to honor the Lord. You know, you need to do all these things. I can talk about what the scriptures have to say about loving God and honoring God, right? But they're going to learn far more from, well, does dad love his enemies? Is dad, is dad good to those who mistreat him? You know, is dad obedient to God when, when you know, his own desires are on the line? Your actions will teach them how important God's commands are and whether or not they should actually be followed in all circumstances. Now, while Amnon's attraction and desire was wrong, that's not where he got into trouble. You know, there are times when people have come to me with, you know, serious temptation of things that they share with me. They say, this, this, is what the, this is what's going on in my head. It's going on in my heart right now, and I, I don't want it there. The enemy of our soul is vile, and he makes the most disgusting things look shiny. When he pops those ideas into your head, that's not where the sinful part is. The sinful part is what we do with it. Amnon's sin was that he embraced that temptation. Look at verse 2. And Amnon was so vexed, the word vexed here, it means to fasten to an object or to be wrapped or tied up by an object. Amnon embraced this temptation to such a degree that the desire entrapped him. It became the ruling desire of his heart. And so it says he fell sick for his sister Tamar. You know, that's the same exact thing that happened to David when he was on the rooftop. The problem wasn't being on the rooftop and noticing a woman bathing in her courtyard. That wasn't where the problem lied. The problem lied in not turning around and going back downstairs. That's where the problem lied. The problem that David had is he entertained it. He allowed it to take home in his heart, and then that desire captured him, and he was trapped. When we let sinful desires have a base of operations in our heart, they will quickly take control, especially when it concerns issues of lust. You know, <laughs> you know I, I try to watch what I eat. I'm not 20 anymore. Uh, not that you shouldn't if you're 20. But... You know, if I, my, my, for, my, I have a daughter, okay? I have two daughters. My oldest daughter, she loves to bake. She likes to bake sweet things. And they are very yummy. <laughs> so I will smell, and then I will go check. And I will compliment her. And if I do not turn around after complimenting her and walk away, I'm going to be ensnared. I will become vexed very quickly. And so we can't entertain those things. Well, Amnon entertains it, and he becomes sick. The word there means to make yourself sick because of anxiety. Amnon let this sinful desire have more than just a base of operations. He let it consume him to the point that the only way he thought he could be happy was to act on this desire. If there's ever a definition for our culture right now, it'd be that, you know? Well, if I, if I don't act on this, I, I, and I, I see it, I, I used to be, you know, I would see it just with young people, with youths, you know, and youthful lusts, you know, and you're like, relax, all right? Yeah, you lost your, your video game privileges for two months because you got bad grades. Three months from now, it'll be fine. Just work hard, get the good grades. You will survive. But now you see these things everywhere. Adults. Adults. 
Amnon couldn't see any way he'd be happy unless he acted on this desire. And the problem is he couldn't act on it because she was under David's protection. It says, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. Again, those words are difficult to read. The fact that she's a virgin, it's not so much just the idea of her virginity, it's the concept of her position. A young woman, a virgin, this word for virgin describes a young woman who is still under the authority and protection of her father in that culture. And so in his mind, he's saying it's, it's too hard for him to do anything about the situation. Um, the phrase thought it too hard, it was too difficult in his eye. Now, at, at the very best, what we have here is a horrible situation. At very best, Amnon has made himself sick, sick with anxiety because he's attracted to her. He knows she's of marriageable age, but not available for him to marry because it's God's law. That would be the very best of a, of a sick situation. But the language here implies something that's not even close to just dudes messed up. He's got some wrong ideas. The concept here, he thought it hard or it was too difficult in his eye to do anything to her? It's hard for me to read that without becoming extremely angry. My, my, my mom and my dad taught me to treat women with respect and dignity. I'm extremely old-fashioned. I mean, I don't always, but very frequently, I still get the door for my wife. It's not because she's not capable. It's, it's an honor to her. She, you know, I'm going to get the door for you because you're a woman and you can't get the door. No, it's an honor. I'm doing it because I'm putting you above myself. I was taught to treat women with dignity and respect. So it makes me angry when I read this because what that leads me to believe is that Amnon started out as a predator, that he saw Tamar as an object, a thing to satisfy his lusts, no different than a piece of food on a plate. And he became anxious because he saw no way to fulfill that predatory lust, like an animal who can't find food. Now, the reason this was so impossible to him is because women were segregated uh, from men in that culture, and, and I'll be blunt. Again, I am old-fashioned. I, I, I don't think we're better because of how we mix everything these days. So call me a prude, whatever you want, but look at all the problems we're having, uh, not just in our culture, but in many cultures that, you know, just blend everything. But even more than that, women in the king's harem, which included their daughters, they were completely unapproachable by any man unless you were a eunuch. You were not allowed to even speak with them unless you were a eunuch because it means then you had no designs on them. Amnon sees no way he can even speak to her to persuade her to be with him at best. And then, of course, at worst, he sees no capability of the means to abuse her for his own pleasure. It is sad that I need to say this tonight, but men... Women are not objects. They are not your property. They are not your servants. They are not your objects to be used. Too often I hear Christian men quote 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 8 and 9, where it says, <clears throat> For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. I've had husbands tell me that. She was created for me. To which I not always so gently say, did you forget verses 11 and 12? Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. But all things are of God. Last I checked, you didn't get here unless you had a mom. 
There's a sick, twisted idea out there that women are not made in God's image like a man is. Scriptures don't teach that anywhere. Women are God's creation made in His image. Genesis 1.27, it tells us He made them in His own image, not Him, them. So God created man in His own image, in the image of God created He, Him, male and female created He, them. They're both in His image, both created by Him. Are there different biblical roles in a marriage? Yes. And violating those roles, those biblical roles like our, our society so often does, creates problems. But the solution is not to see the man as superior to the woman. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 calls a married couple heirs together of the grace of life. It doesn't say the man is the heir of the grace of life, and ladies, you're lucky you get to come along for the ride. I see men all the time making arbitrary decisions in their marriage without speaking to their wives, having conversations with them. What is the Lord speaking to your heart? And when I confront them on it, they're like, I'm the head of this household. And I say, that's the problem. Jesus is supposed to be the head of your household, not you. Does that make it? What do you mean? You're you're saying there's no rules. I didn't say there's no rules. I'm telling you, you're violating Scripture. The role of leader is not taskmaster, sole decision maker. You're heirs together of the grace of life. A, a, a way you could translate that is you help each other on your way to heaven. You need her help. That's the whole point that God brought her around. He said everything he had made, he said, man, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. That's not good yet. That's not good yet. That guy needs some help. <laughs> he needs The Bible teaches us a helper who comes from the opposite direction. Someone who comes with a different perspective, someone who comes from the opposite direction. Now, Amnon displays here that he is a wicked man, rejecting both God's law and God's created order. He is a selfish man, seeing only his desire. And so I say to you tonight, men, do not be such a man. Do not be a predator. Real men, biblical men like Jesus, well, they follow Jesus, who calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Him. Real men sacrifice their lives for others. Be that kind of man. Now, God's laws and then the societal norms that Amnon's upset about in Israel The societal norms and God's laws were designed to protect women. Sadly, wicked people will fight hard to satisfy their sinful desires rather than fight hard to deny themselves. And so in verse 3, we see here, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. The word there, subtle, it's interesting. It means he was a craftsman of knowledge. Like if you, you know, there are guys who really know how to work on a car. There are carpenters. This guy was, he was just smart. You know, he was a craftsman of knowledge. In fact, um, he's David's nephew, but the Bible also will tell us later on in 2 Samuel, he's one of David's counselors. So this guy understood laws and societal norms, but that also means he knew workarounds. And so verse 4, he says unto him, so Jonadab 
he sees Amnon. He says unto him, why are, why are you being the king's son lean from day to day? You have the best life of anybody in Israel. You, you, you eat at the king's table. You got access to, to the, the best education, the best food, the best entertainment. Like, like what's your problem? Why, why are you losing weight? That's what the word there, why are you so lean? Why are you so skinny? Why, what's going on? Amnon's anxiety over this had made him so sick that he'd lost a ton of weight. Will you not tell me, he says? It's part of his job. He's a friend, but he's also the king's advisor. Will you not tell me? And so Amnon confesses to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. I have a problem that's impossible to solve. And I don't know what to do about it. And to be honest, it'd be better if I were dead because I don't think I could solve it. I realize that there are many causes for mental illness, but there is a mental illness that is caused by sinful thinking. And this kind of nonsensical melodrama that's made him physically ill and overly anxious is not something that was out of Amnon's control. He did this to himself. And when you come into contact with someone who is struggling with their thought life because they have unbiblical thinking patterns, the solution is not, it's not medication or something else. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not situations that might be different than this one, but I'm telling you in this case, this wasn't the problem. The solution is the renewing of the mind. And yet, instead of counseling him this way, Jonadab does the worst thing possible. He coddles the sulky princeling. In verse 5, it says, And Jonadab said unto him, I got a solution for you. Lay you down make your bed on your bed and make yourself sick. The word there, make yourself sick, means pretend to be sick, which wouldn't be too hard for Amnon because of all the weight he's lost. Lay you down on your bed, make yourself sick, and when your father comes to see you, say unto him, I pray you, let my sister Tamar come and give me food and dress the meat in my sight, prepare it in my sight that I may see it and eat it at her hand. This isn't an impossible problem, man. You want to talk to the girl? You know, maybe open the doors to the possibility of a relationship? Easy peasy. Lie to your dad and plan his sympathies. He'll let his guard down, and who knows what might happen after that. Can I tell you that this is the worst thing to do for someone who has unbiblical thinking? Why didn't he quote Leviticus to him and say, bro, you can't have that? You know, the answer is no. Why didn't he point out Amnon's lack of self-control? Why didn't he think about protecting Tamar? Telling someone who is miserable what they want to hear helps nobody. More often than not, it leads to causing great pain for someone else. Oh, you're in a bad marriage and that coworker's been flirting with you? Good for you. You deserve to be happy. And yet no thought is taken for the, all the people who will be affected if that counsel is actually listened to. The kids, the family members, the friends. And a person who advises you that way is not your friend. And they are awful counselors. I saw an advertisement this week that said, quote, Christian counselor, the time is now to put yourself first and make a positive change. Get started today. 
to which I would reply, please remove the word Christian from that ad, because following Jesus starts with denying yourself. And last I checked, denying yourself is the exact opposite of putting yourself first. See, no, 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 you don't understand what they're talking. No, I do understand, all right? I get it. Oh, there, there are people who are using you or this or that or other thing. You're in bad situations. That's not the point. The point is the answer isn't of to one wrong. It's not a second wrong. The answer is doing what God says. Psalm 119 verse 24 tells us this. Psalm 119 verse 24 David says, your testimonies are also my delight and my counselors. That should be the scripture that is in front of anyone's mind who dares to give advice. You want my advice? (laughs) Well, God's standards are my delight, and I'm going to tell you to keep them too. God's standards are my delight, and I'm going to tell you to keep them too. Anyone else? Hmm. They're giving you advice. They're sending you down the river. They're selling you something that will never satisfy. Sadly, Amnon is not challenged. Tamar isn't protected by this man's advice. And so Amnon moves forward with a plan to satisfy his lust. It says in verse 6, so Amnon lay down and he made himself sick, pretended to be sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray you, let Tamar, my sister, come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat at her hand. And so then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and dress him food. The story gets worse. The Cakes that are described here are actually heart-shaped pancakes. Yeah, those two men are very sick. Trying to make you little heart-shaped pancakes, you know? And so when Amnon proposes this, David is either oblivious or he's way too lenient. We will see in the rest of 2 Samuel that David is way too lenient with all of his kids. He does not take action when their behavior needs correction, and in the rare times he does take action, it's the wrong action. I've always said David is a man after God's heart, but he's a bad husband and a bad dad. We don't learn from the good things he did in those areas. We learn from his mistakes. We learn from his repentance in the failures he had in those areas. Now, Amnon's going to try to enter into something, some kind of relationship with Tamar on the basis of his lust. And one of the problems with entering into any relationship based on lust is that you are unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices to properly fulfill the responsibilities of the relationship. Like, you, like if you enter into a relationship on the basis of I want something and I'm going to get it, well then you're unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices to properly fulfill the responsibilities of that relationship. You know, David, he married many women, but he was not invested into his family. 
Oh, he had affection for his wives and kids. It's the only reason he even falls for Amnon's lie here. But affection is different than sacrifice. I've seen parents who abuse their kids. I love my kids. I didn't say you don't have fond feelings for them. But love is not fond feelings. Love is the cross. You sacrifice. You lay down your life. That's love. You know, we throw the word love around here like crazy in our, in our culture, you know? Well, if two people love each other, no, no, they have fond feelings for each other. Love, love is a verb. It acts, it sacrifices, it fulfills responsibilities. David was unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices required of a man who properly leads his family. And so his affection is touched by Amnon's bad state and he is deceived. In the same token, Amnon's attempt at some kind of relationship with Tamar, whether a one-night stand or something more, whatever he has in mind originally here, he begins it with deception. <laughs> and any relationship that is gained with deception is doomed to destructive behavior. You know? I- I'm always amazed, you know, we have all these, you know, dating sites and everything now, and, you know, and you hear the stories about, the, you know, they've got the picture and it looks nothing like them, you know, when you meet them. And you're like... Like, what do you think someone was going to say, you know? <laughs> like, oh, but, you know, this is okay, you know? You know, you surely would never lie again. It's the same idea with those who get involved in, you know, flirtation, you know, affairs, you know. And, and I, I say, why do, you think, why do you think this person is trusted? They're willing to cheat on their spouse to be with you or violate your marriage covenant to be with you. You think, you think they're going to keep promises to you? But they love me. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm having a hard time seeing the logic of that. Not trying to be rude. I just, it doesn't logically make sense. If you're going to if you have to be deceptive to catch someone, you're not thinking long-term. Meaningful relationships, healthy relationships, are based on what? Trust, always. I mean, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a romantic relationship, marriage, whatever, they're always based on trust, right? And when you initiate the relationship by violating trust, you will not end up with intimacy. You will not end up with closeness. You may end up with a mutual use relationship, which is how I often see relationships work today, but that is not intimacy. Well, verse 8, so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down. Uh, the phrase there, laid down, uh, refers to laying down on a couch. So this would be probably in a more, like a large public sitting room, and the servants would be about, you know. There would be quite a, a spacious area in the palace or, you know, wherever he's living. And it says, she took flour and kneaded it and made these heart-shaped pancakes in his sight. And she did, you know, prepped them, and then she baked them. And then she took a pan and poured them out before him. The phrase poured out, it means to remove the food from a cooking area and to prepare it to be served. I don't think she actually brought him the food, uh, which is what he wanted. She's in the room, but I think she, you know, prepares it for serving and hands it to a servant. It's likely she didn't think it proper uh, for her to be serving him. 
But notice it says he refused to eat it. And then Amnon says, have out all men from me. And they went out every man from him. Now, that type of thing was unheard of in that culture. You never, if you're not married, you know, if it wasn't your daughter, you, you were a man, you were never left alone with a woman. It, it just didn't happen. And so, the only thing I can think of is he's, well, he's the eldest son of the king, you know, and so the servants obey even though it means exposing Tamar. Verse 10, and Amnon said unto Tamar, bring the meat into the chamber, the food into the chamber that I may eat of your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. And when he had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come lie with me, my sister. The chamber here now refers to a private room, usually included someone's bedroom. Amnon now claims he needs to be served in his private quarters instead of the public sitting room. And when she complies, he takes advantage of her. So he took hold of her. The word here comes from a root that means to be harsh or severe, and it means to physically overpower. But it's not he wasn't kind about it. I mean, this is, there's harshness in this. There's violence in what he's doing here. And he says to her, come lie with me. It's in the imperative, which means it's a command. It's not a, not a question. It's not a proposal. Come lie with me. And then he uses the words, my sister. This word for sister is a, a very deep term of endearment. It can be used for someone who's your sister, but even then, it, it conveys the idea of someone who's beloved like a sister. It's an intimate term. You know, you may have terms for your kids or maybe your siblings, you know. It, this is that kind of a term. It's supposed to be a safe term. When I read this, I, I realize it is all too real to life. In my experience, I've done court-appointed marriage counseling for many years. Most of the time, those are abuse situations. And those who abuse are physically harsh, they are commanding, and they are scornful. Now, that is the exact opposite of how Scriptures command men to treat younger women. In 1 Timothy 5.2, I'll just read it to you real quick. But it says that, you know, Timothy, treat the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. That's how men are supposed to treat younger women and older women, with all purity like a sister. I'm sure Tamara would have loved to have had a brother who truly loved her, who looked out for her. And if this is you tonight, all I can say is I'm so sorry that you were exposed like this to someone you should have been able to trust. I'm sure Tamara likely wondered afterwards where the Lord was in this nightmare. Sure, she wondered where was anyone who could have defended her. You may have even wondered the same. In Psalm 11, it's an interesting psalm that David writes. We read it in our scripture reading. David talks about a violent situation that he was in. David, of course, we know his life was hunted by King Saul. It's Obviously not as delicate as a rape situation. I'm not trying to compare those two in that way. But David was in danger of great violence, and he had very few resources at his disposal. He was at a great disadvantage. 
David starts off saying, in the Lord, I put my trust. It was very easy in a situation like this to say, why should I trust the Lord? He didn't take care of me. And so David says, how is it that people say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? You know, well, you need to find your own place, your own safe place. You can't trust the Lord anymore. For lo, the wicked, they bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. David says, if the foundations be destroyed, if the things that we hold true, if the things that we hold to be true about God, then what do the righteous do when wrong things happen? If we're just going to scrap it all and say, well, God isn't out there, or if he was, he doesn't care. If we're going to do that, then where do we go from here? So David speaks the truth. Where was the Lord? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He's still on the throne. And his eyes behold, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and him that loves violence, his soul hates. We don't always understand why God allows tragedy into our lives, why God allows trials into our lives. We, we don't understand but David says that's a part of our lives, that we live in a fallen world. And there are things that, that God does allow to happen. That's a, this is a whole different topic that I could spend a whole other sermon on. God doesn't stop the wicked because that means he would have to stop all of us. There will come a day, though, when God will. And so what David takes heart in is that the Lord told us that this is part of what it means to be Someone who follows him. We are not immune to the wicked things of this world. However, he sees, he knows, and the wicked do not have that same place in his heart. His soul hates these things, and he hates, he hates those that do such things. He loves them as well, but he hates it. And so upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Every wrong will be righted. For the righteous Lord loves righteousness, and his countenance does behold the upright. He sees. He knows. God's heart is broken for the abused, and he is angry at the abusers. And the day is coming when there will be a reckoning. Asaph is one of my favorite authors in the Old Testament. He wrote quite a few psalms. He is one of David's worship leaders. And there's a brutal honesty to Asaph in some of his songs. In one of his songs he writes, he goes, I almost slipped, man. Like I almost fell away. When I consider the wicked, and now it seems like they get away with stuff and horrible things happen to the righteous. He goes, but then I went into the house of the Lord and I remembered the end of the wicked. God does not forget and God will not do nothing. So, for you single women out there tonight, listen to those who warn you about things they see in your relationships. Do not tolerate a man who doesn't treat you with purity, with dignity, and with respect. Because the truth is, 
If he's willing to cross lines now, you're not going to change that by marrying him. It will get worse. Get help or get out. If you are in a sexually or physically abusive relationship, you need to talk to someone immediately. And you need to get away from that person. You have brothers and sisters who will take you up and who will keep you safe. Beverly and I have taken in women before who have been abused. We've taken in them and their kids. Some, we had one time, we had a woman with six children in our little 14-square-foot home with us and our already had three children. And when that man came to the door, I stood in that doorway and did not let him in. And I told him, you will leave this property now or you will be the one who will be harmed. Tamara, sadly, is not in a place where she can find protection at this point. She's in the heart of the nightmare. She does try to resist, first with a spiritual argument to him, then a practical argument, and then finally with a a logical argument. Verse 12, and she answered him, nay, which means certainly not. I will not lie with you. I'm not going to sleep with you. And then she reasons with him. She says, my brother, do not force me. The word here means to rape someone either by force or by coercion. And I think Amnon's trying to do it by coercion at this point. I don't think his desire is to force her at this point. But what he's saying is, cooperate with me and make this easier. A horrible, abusive, it's just as bad as physical rape. She says, no, don't do this. For no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not this folly. The word folly here means a disgraceful, wicked thing. It usually speaks of a sin that is worthy of death. What you are doing is wrong, and God hates it. No one in Israel thinks this kind of behavior is okay. Do not take it to the next stage, Amnon, because if you do, God cannot bless your life. You will be judged. But that doesn't seem to move Amnon. So when he doesn't relent to her spiritual argument, she tries a more practical one. In verse 13, she says, And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for you, you shall be as one of the fools in Israel. Where shall I go? Where shall I cause my shame to go? This is all anyone will think about me now the woman who is raped by her wicked, demented brother. It will ruin my life. I'll never be able to get married. And you know what? You'll be dead. He says, you'll be as one of the fools in Israel. Every time I read that, I can't think of uh, a little brevity for them, or levity for the moment, I guess I should say. Um, I can't help but thinking of the the guy on the A-team in the 80s, Mr. T., you know, he always used the phrase, just a stupid fool, you know? And I'm kind of like, isn't that the same thing, stupid fool, you know? But I, I loved it because it conveyed the point, you know? That's what this word here means. It means a stupid rebel. You know, it, you know there are sometimes you see people do stuff and you're like, oh, okay, okay, I see what you're trying to do there. Bad decision, but I see what you're trying to do. You didn't get away with it. And then there are other people and you're just like, what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking? The word here for fool, it means someone who is willfully insolent towards God's law. You're going to be like Achan, the guy who took something from Jericho and got stoned to death. You're going to be like the guy who defiantly went out to chop wood on the Sabbath. And everybody's coming to him and going, say, dude, God told us not to do this. I don't care. I need firewood. And he ends up getting killed, executed, 
one of the fools in Israel. You're going to be a proverb to every family. You're going to become the story people tell when someone's making horrible life decisions. You'll be executed. When Amnon still doesn't back off, she makes a final plea, just trying to reason with them. She says, now, therefore, I pray you speak unto the king, for he will not withhold you from me. If this is what you want, let's at least do it the right way. If you really want this, let's do it correctly. Talk to our father. You're his firstborn. He won't tell you no. But David's own daughter appeals to her father's lack of discipline as a terrible indictment against David as a parent. But none of these appeals work on Amnon. He is an abuser. And abusers think only of themselves, and they don't let anything get in their path. So verse 14 has the sad words, Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice. But being stronger than she, which again means she resisted, he forced her, and he lay with her. Amnon claimed to love Tamar. Love does not look like this. Selfishness and wickedness looks like this. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not seek its own. Now, when Amnon is done abusing her, he wants nothing to do with her. Verse 15, this is a very common thing that has been observed from those who are sexual predators. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he loved her. A new passion overwhelmed Amnon. Lust cannot be satisfied, so it was replaced with scorn. And so Amnon said unto her, Arise and be gone. My dissatisfaction is your fault. Abusers almost always blame their victims for their sin. If you are single and in a relationship with someone who regularly tells you that their sin is your fault, you need to put the brakes on. You need to put the brakes on. If you are married and you're in that kind of relationship, then you need to get help. You need to get counseling. And if you're the one saying that to your significant other or to your spouse, you need to repent. My sin is always my fault, period. Even if the other person sinned first, my sin is never someone else's fault. There is always a choice to do the right thing, and God is always more than able to help us do it. And Tamar calls Amnon out on this. She said unto him, there is no cause. The way that this phrase is worded, it means, really? You're going to blame me for this? Do not become the cause of another evil against me. You've already done a great evil to me, and now you're going to cause an even greater one to come upon me? This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done unto me. Because it puts all the blame on her. So Amnon goes even farther in his wickedness, and he has her expelled from the house. It says, but he would not hearken unto her, and then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. Whew. If you've read ahead, you know what happens to this joker, this wicked man. 
Tamar's brother Absalom deals with him. I get that. I get that. We'll deal with him and his problems later on. It is hard not to loathe this man for the wickedness that he does here. Amnon's rape is not Tamar's fault. It's not David's fault. Amnon bears responsibility for his own actions. But the whole point of this section of Scripture is to show us that David contributed to this problem. And so I'd ask you tonight as we we close out, what kind of seeds are you sowing? How are you influencing, you know, your kids? You know, the people that, that you can have influence on in your sphere of influence. What kind of seeds are you sowing? Because they will begin to grow. What are we teaching people by our our words and our actions? You know, how are we discipling others by our own behavior? One of the greatest forms of discipleship Jesus had was just taking his disciples and going around with them, letting them observe him. What are people observing from our lives? Let's all stand. Lord, I I pray for those now who have experienced abuse of any kind that might be in the hearing of my voice, and I pray that you comfort them, be near to them, as I know that these are difficult topics to discuss. Lord, we thank you that there is healing, there is a path forward even when we've been so greatly wronged. And so, Lord, I pray for those who have been tomorrow in one way, shape, or form, that you would bring them healing, Lord, that you would let them know that you love them, and that you show them a continued path forward, Lord, that their life is not over. And Lord, we pray for us, especially I pray for the men tonight, Lord, that we would be sowing good seeds, particularly those of us who are dads into our kids. Lord, you command us to train our children in the way that they should go. And we do that with our mouths and our teaching and our instruction, but Lord, we also instruct with our lives. Let us be men, let us be women whose conduct, Lord, is the, Lord, is the thing that our kids see and they want to emulate a conduct that pleases you. I pray for everyone here tonight. You bless them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.